All right, well, finally, here in Jonah chapter 4, we come to the conclusion of the story of the book of Jonah. And uh, this fourth chapter, uh, to me, it's a conclusion that, unfortunately, a lot of times people just pass over, that they kind of forget about in the book of Jonah. I mean, even a casual observer of the book of Jonah probably knows that there was a man who ran from the will of God for his life. Uh, We might know about that. We might know about the storm that God brought upon the boat as he tried to run from God's presence. Uh, We probably know about the big fish that swallowed Jonah and delivered him back to Israel's shores. And uh, we might even know about the second chance that God gave to Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, the place that he didn't want to go, to preach a message of judgment to the people of Nineveh. And we might even know about the huge revival that unfolded in Nineveh, how the people, when they heard of the promise that in 40 days they would be judged for their wickedness, they threw themselves upon the mercy of God. They said, perhaps he might relent from the disaster that he said he would bring against us. We might know all of these things about the book of Jonah, but the fourth chapter is the point of the book of Jonah. It is the lesson that God has been driving Jonah to up until this moment. And it is the lesson that every reader of the book of Jonah, ourselves included today, need to receive. This final chapter and episode in this book is important because what it shows us is that there is a God who is willing to patiently train us as his people, just as he patiently was training Jonah. Jonah's heart was not reflective of God's heart. Jonah was orthodox in his belief about God, but he was unorthodox in his behavior. He was not living out who he knew God to be. And so God is patiently recalibrating his man. And I don't think that this is something that God does once or twice in our lives over the course of our lives. I think that God, by his spirit, is in the work of recalibrating, training us every single day of our lives. We're bound to have moments where our priorities get out of whack or our beliefs about God become imbalanced. And in those moments, the spirit will do his work to teach and train us to get back into right thinking and into right living. And God is going to do that for Jonah, and Jonah will serve as a template for all of us in what God wants to do in us. So we're going to read the story in three movements today, starting with the first three verses, if you'd look in your Bibles. Now, it's been a while, so I'll remind you that a few weeks ago, we were in Jonah chapter 3, where Jonah went into Nineveh, he preached what was a five-word message in the original Hebrew, uh, that in 40 days, Nineveh would be overthrown, and the people in Nineveh, from the bottom all the way up to the king, they threw themselves upon God's mercy, and they prayed that God would relent from his disaster that he said he'd bring upon them, and God did so. God had mercy upon the people of Nineveh. But in verse one of chapter four, it says, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, Uh, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, in the opposite direction, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So we literally have a prophet of God with a very specific prayer request. (laughs) God, I'm asking you to take my life today. It's better for me to die than it is for me to live if this is the kind of God that you are. Okay, the first thing that I want us to note today is that God is willing to train us when our understanding of him is imbalanced. Uh, I've been hinting at this throughout the whole book of Jonah. I've been alluding to this second verse of chapter four throughout the whole thing, even all the way back in chapter one. And what I've been saying is that Jonah is like a train car that is unhitched from the engine. The engine is going in a certain direction, but because the car or the caboose has not remained attached to the engine, it is not traveling with the engine. Jonah is like that. God has a heart for the people of Nineveh. God is devising means for the people of Nineveh to be rescued. God wants Jonah to be part of that rescue operation, but Jonah is not willing to go. Jonah is not conforming his attitudes and perspectives to the attitude, heart, and perspective of God. In other words, when it came to the way that Jonah treated the people of Nineveh, his attitude about the Ninevite people, he did not reflect God's heart at all. And this opening scene gives us the reason why Jonah uh, behaved in this way. I mean, it says in verse one that when he saw the mercy that God extended to the Ninevites, what was his response? It says that Jonah was exceedingly displeased. It's strong language in the Hebrew. It's, it's meant to say that he is very angry at what God has done in relenting uh, of this disaster that he said he would bring. Why, why did that displease Jonah so much? Well, Jonah probably felt, for one, that the Assyrian people of whom the Ninevites were the capital city, that they were a threat to the people of Israel. Assyria was becoming a superpower at this point, and they were incredibly violent. So anyone in that region is in danger. If the Assyrians do well, they are in danger. So perhaps the reason that Jonah is displeased is because he's concerned for the safety of the people of Israel. But that's not the main reason that Jonah was angry. Uh, probably Jonah also didn't want to return to Israel as the prophet who was sent to preach directly to the wicked, evil Ninevite people and then come back and have everybody in Israel say, how'd it go, man? You were gone for a long time. We can only imagine what happened. Was it, did God rain down fire? Did, a, did the earth open up and swallow them all? What happened? And then Jonah, he has, he's like thinking, I'm gonna have to go back and tell him God forgave everybody. <laughs> and they, they had a big revival, and I swear we're safe, you know, kind of thing. It's possible that that's the reason that Jonah was angry, but it's probably not the main reason. It's also possible, think about this with me, that Jonah was angry that God was withholding judgment from people who had not yet learned how to live correctly when it came to biblical morality. 
It's very possible. Uh, They were an evil people. They were all out of balance. And Jonah did not come preaching morality of any kind. That would have been instruction that came later. Instead, they just threw themselves upon the mercy of God, but they don't know yet how to live. And perhaps Jonah is being like a doctrinal purist and he's saying, you know, something akin to how can you let people who don't even know how to live right, how can you have mercy and grace upon them? But if that was part of his reason, it wasn't the main reason. The reason is found in verse two. He tells God expressly why he's angry about this. Apparently it was an argument that he'd been having with God all the way since uh, the first chapter. He tells God, this is what, what I said back in my own country. This is the way that I've felt for the whole book of Jonah, my whole story. And what he tells God is, God, I knew that you were gracious, merciful, patient, full of loving kindness, and I knew that you would try to find a way to relent from the disaster that you were going to promise through my lips. And that's what drove Jonah crazy. And so he asked God to kill him. In other words, what you have here with Jonah is a prophet who is angry that God allowed a massive revival in Nineveh. This would be like a musician who becomes the number one recording artist in the world and is angry about it. Or a athlete who finally wins a world championship and is angry about it. Jonah is a prophet. That means you want God to use your life. And God uses his life in perhaps the greatest revival in human history, and he's angry about it. And it seems that the reason that Jonah is angry is because he had grown to dislike the gracious, merciful, and loving side of who God is. Okay, listen to me now as I try to explain this to you. I think this is hinted at in what Jonah said about God. Uh, when, When Jonah said that God, I know that you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting from disaster, he was not just making that up about God. This is not just his you know, kind of like conclusion about who God is based on his experience or his own personal preferences. He's actually quoting from scripture. Seven times uh, in the Old Testament, you'll find this type of description about God, starting with an episode in the book of Exodus. Uh, Moses was God's representative to the people of Israel, and he was very close with God. Uh, The Bible says that every day he would go and speak with God like a man speaks to his friend. There was a a closeness of relationship between Moses and God, but but Moses still had never seen God in the full blast of his glory. So one day Moses asked God, he said, can I see you? Uh, This is what I want. This is my one desire. I want to see you. It's, It's actually quite a beautiful heart from Moses. But God says, no man can really see me in all of my glory and live. So what I'll do is I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you there and I'll pass by. And after I've passed by, you'll be able to see the afterglow of my glory. But while I'm passing by, I'll say my name. I'll tell you who I am. I'll let you know my nature. And when God passed by, this is part of what he said. He said, I'm gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But when you go back to that original story and read of what God said about who he is, he kept going. Jonah stopped the quotation, but God kept going. God said in Exodus 34, verse seven, I will keep steadfast love for thousands. I will forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but I will by no means clear the guilty. 
I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This last statement from God, it sometimes bothers people, but it's a necessary part of God's nature. God, in other words, is prone to love. He's prone to grace. He's prone to mercy. He is faithful to keep his covenant toward his people. But he is also the just God who cannot merely overlook sin. Sin creates debt, and debt must be dealt with. Dane Ortland said it this way. He said, without this last statement, all that came before, God's mercy, grace, patience, love, and forgiveness, might be understood as mere leniency. That seems to be what Jonah's accusation was against God. He thinks God is too lenient, that God is out of balance, that God is all grace, all mercy, all love, so he refuses to even mention the justice portion of God's nature. You see, Jonah was a man who lived in the real world. He saw real evil up close and personal. He was exposed to gross injustices. And he chafed at the idea that God would merely turn his face from all that wickedness. He didn't understand how God could go around doing what he just did for the Ninevites and still be holy and just. So he refused to mention God's justice when recounting who God is. In Jonah's mind, in other words, God is too soft. Evil should be punished, and Nineveh needed to be destroyed. In Jonah's mind, people need to know that there's a consistent God who has an order to things. In Jonah's mind, as Tim Keller wrote, the issue is a theological one. There seems to be, in Jonah's mind, a contradiction between the justice of God and the love of God. I think that Jonah feared that news of what God did for Nineveh would get around, and that pretty soon people wouldn't even think twice about committing evil because the forgiveness of God is so close at hand. Okay, he has this imbalanced view of God. And we'll talk about how God solves these problems for Jonah in a moment. But Jonah's imbalanced understanding of God, his inability to see how God's love and justice or grace and holiness were not at odds with each other at all, it was made worse by what, what I'll call an improper ordering of Jonah's loves. An improper ordering of Jonah's loves. Uh, if, we're, if we're honest with ourselves, as human beings, we're capable of this. Uh, it's certainly possible that sometimes as human beings, we love the wrong things, right? Uh, sometimes, I mean, you go all the way back to the book of Genesis and the original sin, it was loving, craving, desiring what? The forbidden fruit. And uh, there are times still today where we love that which we are not allowed to love, we should not love. So you might take as an example uh, when one spouse is unfaithful in their marriage. Uh, that, that would be an example of someone saying, I love something that I really shouldn't love, right? But there are also times, and I think we forget about this a lot as Christians, there are also times where we get the order of our loves uh, out of balance. They're in the wrong place. 
Uh, an example of this would be perhaps when a person loves a career more than they love God. It's not that God is saying, I don't want you to care about your career. He does, but he wants to be first in their lives. So there are times when we love lesser things more than we should, and when we love greater things less than we should. And that was certainly the case with Jonah, and God will address it in the next movement of the story. So let's read it together. It says in verse four, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? I love that question from God. You know, it's just a, a searching question from the spirit. Jonah, is this, is this a little pity party that you're throwing right now? This attitude that you have, is it right for you to be angry? Uh, Jonah doesn't respond, doesn't know how to respond to God at this point. He will in a moment. It says in verse five, though, that Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But verse seven, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. All right, so he's a real stubborn guy. Okay, like I said, not only does God train us when our understanding of him is imbalanced, but I think that God also trains us when our loves are disordered. Okay, here, here in the story, Jonah's inner arguments against God, they've already bubbled to the surface. You're not just, you're out of balance. You are only grace, mercy, and love. Now, you're always gonna relent from disaster. That's who you are. But now God takes Jonah into his counseling office. It's like he puts Jonah on his couch. Like, okay, Jonah, you've had your turn to talk. Now I need to teach you a lesson. And this lesson starts when Jonah goes to the east of the city and it's comical, he builds this little booth there uh, to see what will become of the city. I mean, you have to remember what's happened in the city. You have a city full of people that have just repented of their sins and their hearts are ripe to learn about the God of Israel. I mean, Jonah could have just come in there and been like, this is how we do it. We got this sacrificial system. You got to come to the temple. He could have done the whole thing, but he made no disciples. Instead, he went to the outskirts of town and he waited, I think, to see if God would relent from all his relenting and finally rain down the judgment that he'd originally promised. So he makes this little booth and he's waiting. And pretty soon, the heat of that region starts raining down on Jonah's head. And so God does something that he does all throughout the book. He manipulates nature uh, again. You know, he's used a storm and, a, and wind and a great fish, and now God sends this plant to come up and shade Jonah's head. And it says in verse six that it, God did it to save Jonah from his discomfort. Uh, Jonah is really glad, it says, to have the plant and then he becomes really angry when God sends a worm to attack and destroy the plant. And then when a, 
an east wind comes and begins pummeling Jonah, he becomes so distraught that he just starts saying to no one in particular, it's better for me to die than to live. He's rather dramatic. And God asks him again a second time, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah says again, or defiantly this time, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Okay, clearly, if you follow Jonah throughout this book, this guy is a roller coaster of all kinds of emotions, right? In the belly of the fish, he's thanking God for his grace. He's telling God, I'm gonna worship you again. I'm gonna go back to your holy hill, your temple in Zion. You've blessed me from Zion. He's so thankful that God has rescued his life, but now he's despairing of his life and he's ready to die. And what's happening here is, God is putting Jonah's heart on full display for Jonah and for everybody who's read the book of Jonah. We're seeing his loves clearly in this moment. You see, we're told in verse six that when the plant appeared, that Jonah was exceedingly glad. That's also very strong Hebrew language. It's meant to communicate that Jonah was ecstatic about the plant. Uh, It's like he was doing cartwheels of joy over this development in his life. I love this plant. It's the best. It's just giving me so much peace and shade and comfort. He's excited. And then for as super pumped as he was for the plant's existence, he becomes equally demoralized, devastated when the plant is destroyed and he becomes uncomfortable. Jonah's emotions, like I said, are displayed for everyone to see. Clearly, what Jonah was in love with more than anything else in this story was his own personal comfort and safety. And though we might expect Jonah, just like we'd expect anybody, to be pretty happy if you're out in the desert and the sun is hot to have this miraculous plant grow up, of course he's gonna be kind of excited about that and also get a little bit cranky when the plant is destroyed. I mean, which one of us hasn't felt all godly until we got a little hungry? You know, we all know that experience, but God wasn't saying that Jonah shouldn't have cared at all about these things. God was saying that Jonah should have cared so much less about these things and so much more about the right things, like the salvation of the Ninevite people. Clearly, Jonah cared a lot more for his own personal comfort than he did for the saving of the lost souls of Nineveh. That was the reality deep down in Jonah's heart, and God was willing to expose it so that this man could change and so that we could be taught. He, Jonah, cared more for Israel's comfort and Israel's safety than he did for a serious conversion. And of course Jonah cared about Israel. He was an Israelite, he loved his people. That's normal. But his loves were so disordered that he buried his love for his neighbor underneath his love for himself. And the question that the reader of the book of Jonah is meant to ask is, what about me? What about us? Where and why and how am I angered? And do those moments of anger reveal something about me and what I truly value? Do those moments of anger reveal that I'm more concerned with my own peace, with my own prosperity, 
with my own comfort than I am with the lost of this world? And when we're frustrated that the world and its systems do not reflect Christ and his values, which will happen over and over and over again, when that happens, why are we upset about it? Are we upset about it because we know that it will hurt people who follow those lies and we are pained to see what they're going to endure? Or are we upset about it because we just don't like being the religious minority and having to figure out how to navigate those waters? It's a fine line, but it's the question that the book of Jonah is asking of us. So God questioned Jonah two times about his anger, but now he asks Jonah one last question. I gotta tell you, it's the question that clinches God's argument, but it's also kind of the strangest ending to a Bible book that we've got. I mean, it's just an, the last word is cattle, and then it's over. (laughs) So let's read it together in verse 10 and 11. And the Lord God, or the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? That's it, the book is over. Somebody told me after first service, I read it this week and I kept turning the page. Like, where's, there's gotta be more. It's a brilliant conclusion to the book because it fascinates us and ends with God asking a very searching set of questions. You see, Jonah, God says, Jonah, you've greatly rejoiced over this plant's presence. You became deeply sorrowful when this plant was removed. And now it's like God approaches Jonah and says, hey man, we we need to have a talk about this. Your anger, we need to discuss it. You really couldn't have loved that plant all that much. I mean, it was barely there. You didn't make it grow, you didn't produce it, it was there for a day, and now it's gone, but you're devastated. It came as quickly as it went. I, however, I've had a totally different relationship with the human beings that are living in Nineveh. These are real people that I really love. I planted them, I made them, I've worked for them, I made them in my image, and I want to see them turn to me if at all possible. You see, if Jonah felt so strongly about a plant, How should God feel about an entire city he describes as 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Now, when we read that statement, don't know their right hand from their left, uh, at first glance, we might think that it sounds like there's that many little children in Nineveh who don't know their right from their left. And there are some scholars who think that's exactly what God is alluding to here but that answer probably makes the city of Nineveh much larger than it actually was. But if that is the case, if that's what God is alluding to, then the basic message that God is communicating is 
that there are lots of people in Nineveh, and since he made and cares about people, God cares about Nineveh. And I, and I do think that that perspective is helpful to us as modern Christians, because many modern Christians uh, sometimes even castigate and despise city life. But what we have to recognize is that God loves cities because lots of people live in cities, and God loves people. And even though the Bible begins with stories about rebellious cities, and even though human depravity is on full display inside of the city, by the end of the Old Testament, God's people are being commanded, even Israelites, to move to cities, be sent to cities in exile, and to be a blessing to the cities in which they live. And in the New Testament, the paradigm changes completely. We're not even going in exile, we're sent as missionaries. And where did the church go? They looked for all the major city centers of the world because that's where human beings lived and that's who needed to hear and receive the gospel. And the Bible ends with God taking his people to a city that he has prepared for them eternally. So God is in the process of even redeeming the city. So perhaps all God is saying here is that he loves the city of Nineveh because he loves people. But in even the Bible itself, the phrase do not know their right from their left is a Hebrew idiom that means something like to distinguish or discriminate between certain things. And, and what they would use this phrase for, they don't know their right from their left, they would use it to describe people who didn't have a, a, an, an ability to discern something. So like for instance, there's one episode in the life of David where he's got this old man friend who he's trying to compel to come with him out into the wilderness and this guy says, I'm not gonna go with you, I'm so old, I can't even discern between what tastes good and tastes bad anymore. My taste buds are shot. I don't have the ability to discern between the right and the left. Or the prophet Ezekiel, he talks about priests who weren't teaching the people to discern between clean and unclean things, and he describes it in this way. They're not able to discern the right from the left. And since God uses that same idiom here in Jonah chapter four, what would be indicated is that he's indicating that Nineveh has as many people who are entrapped in sinful lifestyles and they don't know how to get out. Their moral darkness has so blinded and deluded them that they just, they're, they don't, they're trapped. They don't know where to go. They can't discern between their right and their left. Now, they're certainly not morally innocent in God's mind. They're certainly responsible for their choices. That's why God sent the prophet Jonah to them in the first place with that word of confrontation. But what God is saying is, Jonah, there are all these imprisoned, confused, deluded people in this city. And I, just like you had pity on a plant, I have pity on them. That word pity for what Jonah felt for the plant and what God felt for the Ninevites is a strong word. It's a word that indicates attachment. Now we can understand why Jonah felt attached to the plant, right? It provided something for him. He appreciated it. And so he attached himself in his heart to this plant. But the thing about God is that God doesn't need anything. 
He doesn't even need our love. He wants us to love him because it's best for us, but he doesn't even need our love. I mean, God is love, so as a being, he needs love, but because he's triune, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they have been perfectly in loving harmony together from eternity past. So he doesn't need even our love, but despite the fact that he doesn't need anything from us, God decides to attach himself to us. He pitied the people of Nineveh by his choice. And God's question here at the close of the story, it's a searching question. Do we think of people as stuck in and blinded by sin? Do we see them in need of rescue? Do we see them as having much worth? Because as God said of the Ninevites, he made them. Or do we see people as enemies? Do we gloat when they fall? Or do we ridicule them when we watch their actions or hear their arguments? To behave like this is merely a way to detach, like a coward, from the people that God is trying to rescue. It's merely self-protectionism. It's a pattern of disengagement, a way to feel morally superior and like Jonah, safeguard your own life and people and community. What you gotta remember is that God saw the evil of Nineveh way more clearly than Jonah ever could. He saw it from afar, he heard about it from afar, but God was looking into the depraved, broken, fallen heart of every single man, woman, and child inside of that city. He knew the evil that was within, and still he sent his prophet into that mess of a community, not with instruction and education on how to turn things around morally, now, Jonah wasn't there to give a lost and blind people training on how to live a righteous life. Instead, God sent Jonah with a message that was designed to get them to throw themselves upon God's mercy. Perhaps he will relent, they said. And I believe that God sends us in a similar way. Not with moral training in an attempt to reform humanity from the outside in, but with a gospel message that has the potential to change and transform from the inside out. This is what the Lord is asking us to be and to do. On a recent uh, flight when I was coming back from New Jersey, I, uh, my seat was next to uh, a man who had a very serious snoring problem. Um, it was one of those snores that kind of had you worried after a while. Like it was just so violent. He would wake up in this like dazed terror, you know. And, uh, you know, people all around the plane were kind of like looking back, you know. I'm like, it's not me. It's, you know, it's him. But finally, it got to the point where I, uh, as much as I was trying not to, I, I just started laughing. I, could, I couldn't hold it in. And the guy next to me, he could see that my body was, you know, kind of convulsing in laughter. And uh, he, when he saw that, he looked at me and he said, man, that's my boss. He's been doing that all week. <laughs> it's like, we're on a business trip. There's five of us. He's the boss. And in all our meetings, all week, 
he's been falling asleep and he's snoring like that and none of us know what to do. We don't know what to say. I mean, for a quick second, I was like, maybe I'm the man for the job, you know? Like, <laughs> brother, I'm concerned about your health. They didn't know what to say. They felt they couldn't say anything. But God, here with his man Jonah, he has no problem diagnosing and addressing what Jonah did not even know about himself. Jonah had not represented God well throughout his story. And this concluding question or series of questions from God, it was like a sleep study designed to show Jonah the truth about himself. And the book of Jonah concludes with this searching question. And I think we all hope that Jonah eventually got it. I kind of think that he did. That's why we have the book of Jonah. But that's not the point. The point is for us. Are our loves in right order? Do we care deeply about a lost humanity? And do we care about that lost humanity more than we care about our own comforts and safety? These are searching questions. And the answers to those questions might discourage us at times. We might feel like we're modern Jonas sometimes over certain issues or times or seasons, misrepresenting God's nature to our world. Fortunately for us, Jesus came as the better representative of God's nature than Jonah or any of us. All the Old Testament heroes point forward to Jesus, the one who had no imperfection whatsoever. Jesus came from the Father as the Son of God and God the Son, and he flawlessly represented the heart of God. Jonah had little grace for people who didn't know their moral right from their left, but when Jesus was being crucified on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If you read the passage, they knew exactly what they were doing. But the grace that was extending from Christ's heart is powerful. And all throughout his life and ministry, Jesus accurately showed us who God is. So much so that the book of Hebrews calls Jesus the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. But Jesus is also the figure who helps us solve our theological riddles. I mean, I don't personally think that we should be too dismissive of the way that Jonah felt about God's nature. He had a question about God. He had a hard time seeing how God's grace was compatible with God's justice. He saw things that were clearly wrong that needed to be dealt with. And though Jonah was super willing to accept God's grace for himself, he wasn't quite as excited about it when God's grace reached the Ninevite people. If God was willing to extend mercy towards them, who in the world would God ever judge? And if God is also holy and righteous, isn't there a limit to his mercy and grace? And isn't justice and judgment needed for an ordered society, especially for those who are such a threat to other people like the Assyrians? And as our book ends, Jonah, he's still grappling with those questions about God. Just like the older brother, in the story of the prodigal son, was dumbfounded when his father 
recklessly ran to his returning prodigal, Jonah is still, at the end of this book, dumbfounded by God. I don't know how you're able to behave like that towards these people. And we might expect moments where we also struggle with similar questions about God, but we have such a better vantage point than Jonah could have ever had. Because God's holiness and mercy, God's justice and grace are perfectly demonstrated in the cross of Christ. His cross is the one place where God completely extends his perfect love and his total holiness. In the cross, God is not merely in total balance, like he's not in balance in other parts of scripture or history. He's always in total balance. But in the cross, God is totally expressed. In other words, think of it like this. Ask the question, how loving is God? Well, the best answer for that is by looking at the cross. He loved you so much that he sent his only son to die for you. Or ask the question, how holy is God? Jonah was struggling with that after all. How holy is God? Well, look at the cross. God is so perfect and pure that not even, not even one sin can be dismissed without the precious blood of Christ. Or how gracious and merciful is God? Well, look at the cross. He is so gracious that he gives, that's grace, to give. He gives himself to take our punishment. Or how just is God? Look at the cross. He is so just that he does not dismiss even one ounce of the penalty for sin, but instead consumed the entire penalty of wrath on that cross. And now all of us, little Ninevites and Jonas, we have to accept God's gift so that we can become his because to reject that gift would be a sin worse than any other.